Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back. Uh, we uh, appreciate the welcome. It was, uh, we had a fabulous time being gone. Uh, we, it's a little unusual to take three weeks. I started this a few years ago, or at least, at least a few years ago. It just, with Barb being a public school teacher and us in the roles that we're in, the three weeks just gives us an ample amount of time to really rest and uh, disconnect. And, uh, but it's also long enough to go, eh, we want to get back to work. We want to, we want to get back in and serve people and be involved. Although being off the job didn't keep us off mission. Uh, we probably had three or four good spiritual gospel conversations with people down there. Uh, ran into one family down at the pool. I think we were the only two there at that particular pool and probably talked about 45 minutes about the gospel and things like baptism and all kinds of things. So it was a lot of fun. And uh, as I told a friend of mine, I said, well, we're off job for a while, but never off mission. So it's, uh, it's fun to be on point when you're doing that. Um, my wife is actually gone. She's actually watching from Portland. I put her on the airplane on Friday, and she's out there till next Sunday and then comes back. Then it really gets fun. You know, we're just like ramping it up. Then she starts school on the Monday. I have to make a trip to Illinois and visit a couple of churches. Be back on Friday. Grant's agreed to come back, speak Labor Day weekend, and I'm speaking at a camp six times over that Labor Day weekend. So, um, you know, we're not bored, that's for sure. That's uh, what we're doing. Uh, let me, before I jump into the message, I want to do a couple of things here that I know that we've talked about but haven't sort of uh, brought to closure. Um, You'll notice, many of you, that we've got a big dump box out here and there's construction going on. That is uh, some of the work the trustees are doing a fabulous job on looking after some renovations and upgrades in terms of our bathrooms and other elements. Part of that is because of Notre Cole, the school that's here, as uh, we try to keep things up on a, a standard that certainly is viable for them as well as for us. Uh, so that's going on. They're re renovating some of the bathrooms and some of the rooms and getting them up to ready. The school will be back in here, at least the teachers, next week. So that's uh, a big shift as we move into September. Um, but one of the things we've often talked about is that we have been working on uh, re-envisioning where we're going as a church. And uh, we want to sort of bring that around and talk to you about it. And so early in September, we're going to set a time together to have a family meeting so that we can talk about with you some of the things that we've been looking at as elders and staff and what the Lord's really been putting on our heart. And uh, we'll confirm the exact day this week. I'm hoping it will be uh, the same night as we do the, uh, the, the all-church prayer time, which is September the 8th. Uh, if you come, we'll spend about a half an hour, 40 minutes in prayer, and we want to start the year off praying for our ministries and our lives and our connection to the community. So I hope you'll put that on your calendar. Um, as we begin to step into this new school year, at least for a lot of our families. Uh, couple, one other note I want to make, uh, just so that you know some of the changes that are going on. Uh, most of you know that Gordy has been our, what do you call him, sanitary engineer, janitor, whatever labels you want to put to it for a while, but he's been uh, taking on a full-time job now, so he's transitioning out of that and uh, Joel Larson is going to step into that role starting September 1st. So we're excited that there's not a big gap in that because you know the most important job is keeping the place clean because it would deteriorate quickly if it's not there. So that change is happening the 1st of September and we have a lot of other things on our plate. Uh, I know a lot of life stuff goes on. I saw Dennis Dane walking around with a cast. I thought that was a creative way to start the year or whatever or end the summer, however it works. 
Uh, Zach Kinder found out this last week that his dad passed away and Brady Pass had the same thing just the other day. I know there's a lot of other things going on, but that's part of being a community of faith. So I hope that we'll keep our ear to the ground with each other and keep praying for each other as we go through these life experiences. Um, it's not just about gathering on Sunday, it's about being a community uh, filled with the Spirit of God, not only loving one another, but connecting the gospel to our lost world. So in any event, uh, it's fun to be back. I'm gonna invite you to bow with me as we pray, and then we'll step into the Gospel of Mark this morning. Well, Father, what an amazing privilege it is. And we've said it most many times that we have this free access to walk into your very throne room, to come before your throne of grace and know that you welcome us with open arms. You know, Father, that's a, that's a value and a, and a privilege that you've given to us that we know that we don't deserve and yet it's all because of your son, Jesus Christ. He's the one that loved us so much that he sacrificed his life on a cross and was crucified so that we would have the opportunity to be reconciled back to you by believing in who you are and having faith in the work of your son. And knowing that you've made some exorbitant promises that if we'll surrender our life to you by recognizing that only through Christ we can have the forgiveness of sins, that it's in that moment that you give us a right standing before you, that you adopt us into your family and we belong to you for all of eternity. But sometimes, Father, we struggle living that way, living with the confidence that we know that you'll never cast us out, you'll never abandon us, you'll never leave us alone, you'll never change your mind because of our behavior. And so this morning we ask that you continue to reaffirm your deep love and acceptance in our life, not because of who we are or because of our goodness, but because of Christ. We ask that you'd reaffirm that in our own hearts and continue to ask and allow us to search our hearts, to find those dysfunctional parts in our life that we need to surrender to you, those areas of our life that need healing so that we can allow your grace and spirit to manifest the fullness of your presence in us so that the power may be of you and not ourselves. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen. The text we're looking at this morning is Mark chapter 2, 23 through 28. Let me begin by just reading that text and then we'll try to step into it. One Sabbath, Jesus, although it's a personal pronoun, not necessarily his name, he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you ever read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man has, is Lord even over the Sabbath. Now, for most of us, this is a pretty pedestrian text. Jesus is walking as he carries out his mission and is training his disciples and using them. They happen to be walking through some grain fields, and the Pharisees, being the top-notch religious gurus that they are, uh, are eagerly looking for some way to discredit Jesus. And so they come to him and approach him because Jesus somehow in there is either modeled for them, although the text doesn't tell us Jesus did this, but he has clearly given permission for his disciples 
to start rubbing off gra- the, the grain and rolling it in their hands so that they have something to eat. It, clearly, there's a sense of need that they're hungry in terms of their journey. The Pharisees spot this and they start making an issue of it. In fact, even though they pointed out what the disciples are doing, their attempt here is to discredit Jesus. They want to demonstrate that he is not the person that he claims to be and they want to uh, regain followers back to their sort of pharisaical religion rather than allow people to keep being drawn away to follow this Jesus. While this text looks really simple, there's a lot of... uh, Uh, hermeneutical things that go on here that we won't take time to look at this morning. For instance, when it talks about Jesus referring to an individual called Abathar the high priest, that refers us back to 1 Samuel chapter 20, uh, 21, and it really has Ahimelech as being the high priest at that particular time. So there's a lot of questions about different elements of this story and, and how they line up with the events that happen in the Old Testament, which we'll go back and look at. But there's, we don't want to miss the key truth that Jesus is communicating as he engages the Pharisees and their criticism for some of the details that I think can be worked out in reasonable ways. As Jesus works through this, I was uh, reminded of a story I heard about Princess Elizabeth, daughter of King Charles I of England. Uh, she lies buried at Newport Church in the Isle of Wight. During the time of her father's trouble, she was a prisoner in Castlebrook Castle. Uh, in the same beautiful island, but while she was there, she had a long spell of sickness while she was in prison. And it was a fairly torturous kind of journey for her, but one day they went up there and they found that she had died, but she was in her bed and she had a Bible open to her and she had her finger on a page that had these words to it that was simply said, come to me all you who are labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. You know, one of the remarkable things about our relationship with Christ is that there's sort of two avenues to it. We know that when we come and surrender to God through the gospel and we put our faith and trust in Christ and receive him into our life, that God gives us peace with him, that we have a right standing with him. We know that we become a child of God. We're removed from the wrath of God. And so there's a sense of of eternal peace that ought to seep into our soul and our spirit to understand that I understand the God who created all this, that the world, as chaotic as it is, makes sense because I can read about why it is the way it is in the scriptures. And the most secure people in the world ought to be Christians because they know the God who created it. And yet the other side of our life is how we live out our Christian life. And, and that sometimes is a bigger struggle because there's times that we just frankly have trouble trusting the God that we claim to follow. It's sometimes hard to rely on Jesus for things that we want to put our fingers on and control. If we grew up in a really rigorous, religious, legalistic household, it's it's hard to not live by rules and regulations, but we all know that that journey can be very exhausting. And, And there's times that we feel an absence of peace and rest even in our own soul because we're troubled by this and we are facing unknown things here. And we don't know what tomorrow will bring and my job's uncertain and I worry about my kids growing up in the world that we're in. And there's every reason in the world to feel anxiety rather than peace. One of the things that I love about going away for three weeks of vacation is that it's not one week. Uh, Most of the people I talk to, if you live a very hectic, busy, sort of frenetic life, 
whether it's self-imposed or just the life or work that you have, is that you go away for a week and you just start to relax and then you get slammed right back into the workplace. That's not very much fun at all for most people. Three weeks gives a great chance to completely disconnect. Uh, It gives a great chance to rest. Your body just feels like it's toned down a whole, not tan, but toned down. And, and, And literally you come to a different mode of life where you just feel rest for everything. Because there's nothing pressuring you, there's no responsibilities, no demands, no one chirping in your ear, no one complaining and criticizing. And yet that kind of experience shouldn't be the experience only when we go on vacation. It should be the experience of those who are walking deeply with Christ. And so the question I want to ask you this morning is do you know the peace and the rest of the person of Christ in your life in the midst of the chaos that you're facing every day? Now this story, while it has a lot of different branches to it, Uh, is a story that I think helps us understand what that's supposed to look like in our life. The controversy starts over the Pharisees catching Jesus walking through the grain fields with his disciples. And, of course, it happens to be on the Sabbath, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. The Pharisees are the ones that stir this up, and they uh, criticize the disciples for rubbing grain in their hands, and then as Matthew and Luke would seem to indicate, that they're, the intent here is to eat it. Now, the question is, why are they making such a fuss? Why, why in the world are they just obsessing over something that's pretty minor and pedestrian? Well, one of the things we need to understand is understand a little bit of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is something that God actually instituted in creation. He created for six days, and on the seventh day, we're told in Genesis 2 that God rested from his work like he needed to, but that's what he, we are told that God did. He declares that everything is good, and it's, it's, there's this element that we, we get that God doesn't need a break from things, but he does it on purpose, probably in terms of just enjoying what he has created, I mean, he declares that everything is good and that when men and women come along and he creates them, it's very good. But it's based on that, that as God develops a relationship with Israel, that the Sabbath gets integrated into his covenant relationship with them. And so you will see even in Exodus when they're going through the wilderness that God says to them, listen, I'm going to supply to you bread from from heaven, it's called manna as they called it, and you're going to collect it six days a week, but on the seventh day, You're not to do any work and go out and collect this stuff, so you're gonna do a double portion of it on the the day before the Sabbath, and then you're gonna rest. Not gonna do any work. It's a day that's dedicated to me, and so I'm gonna give you what you need so that you can focus on me. Of course, they were smart enough to go, oh, I don't know if that'll actually happen, so they went out and collected it, and it was ruined. They just, it didn't work because they didn't trust that God would provide for them. When the God forms his covenant relationship with Israel, the Sabbath is woven into all elements of the covenant, that they are to work six days, and part of the commands that you will see is that they are to rest on the seventh day. It was a day that was dedicated to the Lord. And so it's pretty explicit in the scriptures, there's really two elements to the idea of the Sabbath in its most basic form. The one is is that they were to rest from all the regular activities, the busyness of life and family and work and occupation and all those kinds of things, doing their own stuff, uh, for the lack of better words, from chasing and pursuing their own hobbies and their own adventures. And, And when they came to the Sabbath, they weren't supposed to do anything. 
Now, it didn't mean doing nothing. It, what it really meant is that they were to rest from their regular activities and they were to give their attention to realigning their lives with God. Because God knows humanity well enough that man will become distracted and overrun by the things that they think they have to do. We have this tendency in our life to want to control everything and, and in, certainly in our culture we're workaholics, a lot of us, and so the busier we are, the more fulfilled and successful we think we are. And yet when he comes to this, the basic principle is God wanted them to rest from their responsibilities of life to refresh their relationship with him. And you'll see that all the way through his covenant relationship with Israel. Now that's a hard thing to think about, but that's the essence of the Sabbath. So the idea uh, on this criticism that the Pharisees comes to him is really quite interesting because as it says, as they were going through there, the disciples were plucking heads of grain and the Pharisees immediately jump on this. In Mark chapters one and two, you'll discover that Jesus has had several conflicts. It's interesting, if you follow through the line of thought through the early chapter here, you will discover that there are three issues that come up in conflict. Mark 2.16, there's a conflict about eating with sinners. And the Pharisees and the scribes take issue with Jesus because he's eating with sinners. In Mark chapter 2, verse 18, it's about fasting or not fasting. So again, it circles around the issue of food. And then when we get to this particular text, it's about eating, uh, eating grain in the fields. And, and that becomes a hot issue with the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus is going to take us back to David when he went into the temple and took the, the bread of the presence. So it all circles around this issue of food. And one of the things that becomes remarkable about this, and we can't explore all the details of this, but I want to suggest three things about the Pharisees. The first thing, and I don't mean this overly negative, but they're manufacturing a, 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 an issue with Jesus and the disciples. For instance, if you go back, you will discover that the idea of people going and rubbing grain and eating it, especially in someone else's land, really goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 24 and 25. What's interesting about this text is that if you look at your Bibles, you'll see that it's often labeled as a whole bunch of miscellaneous laws that are not even tied to the Sabbath. These aren't talking, it's talking about marriage, it's talking about making vows, it's talking about a number of different things, but none of them is explicitly connected to the Sabbath. In fact, the command in Deuteronomy 23, verse 24, explicitly makes the statement that if you're going into a neighbor's field and uh, you can take whatever you want in your hands and eat it, whether it's a uh, an orchard or whether it's grain or whatever, you can take what you want and eat to meet your needs. The thing you cannot do is you can't start filling bags of their stuff. And you can't take a sickle in there and start basically doing work and harvesting that stuff because then it be amounts to theft. You're stealing from someone else's property and their hard work. But they are allowed to meet their need of hunger just by taking what they can get a hold of and eating it. So what the disciples and Jesus are doing, technically, isn't wrong in and of itself. They're doing exactly what the law asked them to do. The problem is they're doing it on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees and the scribes jump on this, and they're going, these guys are doing what is not lawful. Now, the reason they're saying that is because if you go to the fourth commandment, you'll see it's very explicit. Jesus said, or God said to Israel, Six days you shall work, on the seventh day, and it's fairly explicit, you're not to do any kind of work at all. 
Not, your, not you, not your wife, not your servants, not your employees. You can't even get your animals. You, you're not even to take the animals and have them do it. You know? It's like go hook up the cow and send him off by himself and he'll do the work and we not, we're not really doing anything. You can't even pull that off. There wasn't to be any work at all. They were to completely rest from their regular responsibilities and activities. But the, the idea behind it is clearly built around this idea of I want you to reconnect and refocus on me. So to some degree, the, the, the scribes are connecting two different, they're manufacturing this, they're taking this idea of eating grain, which is permissible, but because it's on the Sabbath, now it's a violation of doing work. So the second thing that I will propose to you that they do is that the Pharisees, and this is more of an interpretive element, are making mountains out of molehills. You ever run into people that do that? You ever run into Christians who do that? Yeah, there are Christians who are very committed to the, the rules and the regulations, at least their own rules and regulations. And there are some groups of Christians, like the Pharisees, who are very eager to point out to other Christians when they're out of step. And, and lots of times it's over issues that seem pretty innocuous, pretty insignificant. But that's their personal conviction about it, and the Pharisees had deep convictions about not doing anything, and so they were jumping on them like everything. And, and you'll run into Christians at times who will demonstrate this in a couple of different ways. You'll run into some Christians who just like to complain about everything. They're not doing it right. That's not the way it's supposed to be done. That, that, this, and it goes on and on and on about how this is wrong and that person's not doing it right and that person shouldn't be in that role and all kinds of stuff. And, and they nitpick over things that they can use the Bible to support their ideas, but it's over literally molehills but they want to make a mountain of an issue of it because they think that's a spiritual thing to do. But the danger is, is like the Pharisees, all they want to do is point out where everybody else is wrong. And unless the person does it their way, everybody's wrong. And so we're going to run into that, but it's the danger that we grow up, especially in our culture. Because our sense of value and significance is all built on our performance and our busyness, and our success, and doing it bigger and better. And it's really easy, especially when we feel like we're failing, to nitpick over the little things in other people's lives where, because it makes us, us feel better about our own failures. And Jesus is going to push back on this in a really unique way. In fact, I, I believe what Jesus is going to say is, guys, you're like missing the whole point of this. You're really, you're jumping all over us because you think they're doing work on the Sabbath by picking grains and eating and meeting a need. And he's going like, and I'm going to put his words in there, not only are you making a mountain out of a molehill, but you're missing the whole point of this. You're missing the whole point of why God gave you the Sabbath in the first place. And he's going to mention that a little bit later. And so Jesus then transitions and talks about an illustration. He comes to them and says very clearly, uh, you guys ever heard of David? Well, of course they have. They're Pharisees and scribes. They're going to know about David. And so he points to them and he says, you remember when David went to Nob and he uh, went in there and asked the high priest for the bread of the presence? And he specifically says in the text that this was not lawful for anyone to eat except for the high priest. 
we won't go through it today, but in 1 Samuel chapter 21, 1 through 6, is this whole discussion. It raises a lot of questions because there are certain things that don't seem to sync with the way Jesus is speaking here. But the point is, Jesus says, David went in, got the bread of the presence, and he ate it and gave it to some of his friends. Now, if you don't know what the bread of the presence is, in the old tabernacle, this was the way God had relationship with his people. There was a narthex on the outside, there was a holy place in the middle, and then in the back was the holy of holies. I uh, often make fun of churches. I, I don't make fun of churches, I make fun of church buildings. Because we tend to build them like we, they did in the Old Testament, because that's the only pattern we've had. So we have a narthex, this is often the holy place, and then back there, of course, where the baptismal tanks, that's the holy of holies. I am kidding, right? You know, right? <laughs> but you will find people who treat the building like the Old Testament tabernacle. When I was in Portland, I've told you this story before, but I, uh, when we started allowing people to come in and bring coffee and that kind of stuff into the auditorium, I had people that were really upset about it. And they literally made a mountain out of a molehill. They were coming in and going like, but I understand the confusion because they're coming in, isn't this the sanctuary? <laughs> you know where this is going, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> this is a sanctuary and, and it's dishonoring to God to bring in coffee and tea and that kind of stuff into this environment and for those of you who haven't heard this story this, I, I was willing to be gracious about it and say well listen we, just, we feel like th the people are the church it's not the building this isn't the sanctuary if there's anything that's a sanctuary it's the people because the spirit of God dwells in them and the 1 Corinthians 3 and 6 in fact say that she wouldn't leave it alone she was making a huge mountain out of this thing, and she was going like, this is wrong. And unfortunately, I knew something about her that I wasn't going to bring up, but, you know, if you push hard enough, I'm going to push back. So I said to her, I said, well, listen, tell me something. You feel like it dishonors God to bring coffee or whatever into the sanctuary. I'm going to make a claim that our bodies, our life is the sanctuary of the Spirit of God. So I said, can you tell me the difference about what's more dishonoring when people bring hot chocolate or coffee into the auditorium, or when you go out into the parking lot between services and Sunday school and you smoke. And that's when the conversation ended. We had another time where we took all the, had chairs and we put round tables in and we had communion that morning and we set up food stuff so people could eat together. And I had one of the guys who was actually my elder stand at the doorway. He was just like at the back doorway. He looked like a sentinel. And he, I walked over to him, and I knew what was going on. And I said, good morning. How you doing? And he says, you're not, I'm not saying you're doing anything wrong, but I can't be here this morning. And I said, why? Well, I knew why. He just said, I can't be here this morning. And the reason is, is we were eating food in the sanctuary. I said, you do read about the New Testament and like what they did when they gathered, like they actually had meals together, but it didn't matter to him because th he felt like we were dishonoring the sanctuary. Now the problem is we all grew up learning what we learn because people teach it to us, but the problem is we have to keep evaluating our personal convictions based on what the Bible says because we're all in danger of making mountains out of molehills on our personal conviction of things that aren't even biblical even though we can sometimes use the scriptures to justify it. And the Pharisees were experts at this. 
And so Jesus takes him back and talks about David, and there's a whole different, lot of different ways to try to figure this out. But I believe that what happened is that David goes to Nob, he meets with Ahimelech, and Ahimelech actually brings it up. He, David says, have you got any food around here, some bread or anything? And, and he says, well, we don't have any common food. All we've got is the bread of the presence, that which was put into the holy place as part of what God required in terms of being in their presence. So there was incense and other things, but on the north side of the holy place was a table that had two trays on it, and there was the bread of the presence. There were six loaves on one tray and six on the other. So they, every Sabbath, the Levites were responsible for cooking up this bread, and they put it with frankincense because it was Israel's offering to the priests to provide for them, and this is the way God provided for them, and that bread was theirs and only theirs. They were the only ones to eat it, but the, the, the contingency was, at least as stated in the scriptures, is that they were to eat that bread in the holy place. Now, there's a lot of ways to spin this to try to figure out where he's breaking the law. I suspect what happened is the Passover had passed. The priests had come in and ate what they did, but unless they like really, really, really loved buttered bread, they probably couldn't eat it all. And so they were satisfied because it was the way God provided for them. They ate their fill, but they weren't, as I understand it, they weren't allowed to just haul it out in buckets and stuff their clothes with it. They ate what they had. They had to eat it in the holy place, and they left. So when David comes along... The bread has served its purpose. So technically, the priests are the only ones to have it, but I believe since they've already eaten, and that's, it's already met its expiration date. And so the priest goes, well, listen, this is what's left over. Here, you can have this, as long as your men have certain, you know, met certain criteria. And so he breaks the law, the legal element of the law, but the rule for how that was to be used was fulfilled because it goes to the priest. Now, if David came in and stole that and the priest didn't get anything, that would be a, a clear violation of what needed to happen. But the exception is made because, I believe, it's already met its expiration date. But technically, Jesus says it was unlawful for him to do it. Now, as he sort of pulls this together, Jesus tries to suggest to the Pharisees something that they're missing. See, if you go back into the Old Testament tabernacle, you'll discover that commentators will look at all the things that were in the holy place as foreshadowing what Jesus would do for us in relationship to God the Father. Because the Holy of Holies back there was where the Shekinah glory dwelt, where God met with the high priest. It was only to him that he would meet as he would interact with God and know his will and offer sacrifices for the people. The holy place, most, most commentators will say all those elements represent Christ in what he will do for us. So when you get to the New Testament, you will discover that Jesus talks about the manna that God gave to them, but he's the bread of life. And most commentators will agree that the manna that was put in the ark represented the life that God gave to them to survive the wilderness, that the, the bread of the presence was to remind them that God was present with them and that he would supply their needs. That he was the one that they were to be satisfied with. And so when Jesus is going through the grain field with his disciples, he is God present. And to allow the disciples to, to eat the grain to satisfy their basic need, in a sense wasn't violating it because Jesus was God in the flesh present in their midst. 
So they kept the law about the grain, and because it was the Sabbath, it was to remind Israel always about their relationship with God, but the Pharisees had totally lost sight of that. They, all they saw Jesus as a rebel who was violating their rules and their religion and their regulations. They didn't see Jesus as the embodiment of why the Sabbath was given in the first place. And that is so that God's people would take a break from all their frenetic busyness, their control issues, their religion and everything else. And what they would do is just they'd come and they'd offer sacrifices and realign themselves with the God who delivered them out of Egypt. And the Pharisees had totally lost sight of that. In fact, their whole religion was about making sure everyone kept the rules. You ever run into people like that? They have certain demands and expectations about how church works and what the church should do and not do, and and they have a whole bunch of rules that this is the way it's supposed to happen. And unfortunately, you usually sort of pick this up because they tend to complain about things a lot if, if you run into them. Not always, but that tends to be their demeanor. And frankly, to me, they've lost sight that the whole idea of the Old Testament law was to help them keep in touch in their relationship with God, not just keep the rules for the sake of keeping the rules. And yet it happens to us all the time. Jesus follows it by saying, listen, one of the things you guys have forgotten is that the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. From the very beginning, the idea of God resting and then integrating it with the people of Israel when he delivered them out of the land of Egypt and then entered into a covenant relationship with them is really reflected in like Deuteronomy 8. When God says, I'm going to take you into the promised land, it's, I'm going, to, it's going to be overflowing with blessing and harvest and orchards and I'm going to abundantly supply everything for you in abundance But he gave them a warning that when you go in there and you get busy doing all this stuff and and you have all these things and you've got an abundance of things that meet your basic needs, the greatest thing you need to be careful about is forgetting about me and turning away from me, thinking you did this in your own power and start to worship other gods because you're proud of all your success and accomplishments. And what Israel had done is they were really good at keeping the rules, but they'd lost total sight of their relationship with God. In fact, the Pharisees couldn't see God right in front of them because the rules were more important than the person. And there's nothing that will destroy a Christian's walk with God that when the rules become more important than the relationship. Because the Sabbath was given so that people would rest and realign their relationship with God so they would know the fullness of his blessing. They would know the fullness of his love. They would know his blessing and acceptance and in all of that they know that all is good no matter how messed up the world is. I belong to God and I'm secure in his presence. And so Jesus goes back to this whole idea that, listen, I got, we gave the Sabbath so that Israel would always have this anchor, this spiritual anchor where they would set aside the things of this life and they'd gather together and they'd present themselves before God. Now, there's nothing in the New Testament that would suggest that Sunday mornings is the Christian Sabbath. It's never referred to like that. 
The word Sabbath is used in the New Testament lots of times, but more as a circumstantial objective that Paul went into the synagogue on the Sabbath to preach the gospel. There is one time that it's used in reference to a need that we have as Christians, and that is in Hebrews chapter 4. Because what we'll discover is that, for instance, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes to them and he says, listen, don't let anyone judge you regarding new moon or festivals or Sabbath, because these things are simply a shadow of the things to come, and Christ is the substance of it. And I believe what Jesus is doing with the Pharisees and scribes is saying, listen, the Sabbath was given for man. It was given to his people, it was given to man, so that in all the distractions and the hectic pace of life, they would always have an anchor point where they could come back and they could refocus on him so that they wouldn't lose sight of their God, they wouldn't lose sight of his, their relationship with him, and to start getting this arrogance like, look what I've accomplished, and we don't need God anymore, and I can do my own thing, and I don't need to pray, and I don't need to read his word. I can do my own thing in my own way because I'm self-sufficient. And yet the great danger in our culture is that church is becoming a bit of an anomaly. That there's all kinds of people who don't care about gathering anymore because they've got it all put together, don't need it. I, they, they've, they've developed a sense of expectations and rules like, hey, I love God, I just can't stand the church. Too many rules, too many regulations, too many problem people, too many people who are a pain in the neck, too many imperfect people. Yeah, that's quite a statement. I got news for you. Every one of us is broken and messed up. And the reason we want to gather together is not necessarily to keep the Sabbath, but to make sure we carve out times where we get back to our spiritual foundation and our anchor in the greatest relationship you and I could ever have so that we don't become indifferent, that we don't neglect it, that we don't abandon it because we think we're the captains of our own fate. And yet that's what's creeping into the community of faith in America. We don't need this anymore. We can do our own thing. I love Christ. I just can't stand Christians. Hebrews chapter 4, and I'm going to actually take the time just to read this because I think this is the element that steps into our life. Most of us understand the gospel in terms of getting right with God, but some of us still operate out of a legalistic framework as we try to live out our Christian life. And that will destroy you. That will turn you into a Pharisee who's always looking to see how other people do it wrong but have nothing to fill people up with. Therefore, and he's speaking about Israel, because they had failed to enter the promised land because of a lack of faith, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, which was a reference to the promised land, still stands, let us fear lest any of you should have failed to reach it. There's going to be Christians who fail to live in the peace and the rest and the blessing of God because of a lack of faith and a a very legalistic approach to their Christianity. Because that will indeed suck the very life out of your relationship with Jesus. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were... It was not united by faith and those who, for those who listened. For we who have believed, so they've already believed, enter that rest 
And he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and some who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Why did God give them a Sabbath? Why does, in a sense, they give us sort of a Christian Sabbath in this form? Well, it's not to get saved. It's how to live in a sanctified way that enjoys the fullness of who God is. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. The, the hermeneutics here are a little weird, so if it sounds a bit strange, there's a reason for it. So then there remains a Sabbath rest, not a day, but a condition of life, a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now the idea is when we come to Christ, we don't have to keep striving to figure out the significance of my life. I don't have to keep striving to understand my identity. I don't have to keep striving to figure out if my life is meaningful or significant or it makes a difference. Because there's something about understanding my relationship with God that ought to give us a sense of peace and rest that is so deep and so pervasive that I know that I'm loved whether I do anything profitable for God ever for the rest of my life. I'm not promoting that. I'm just saying that we ought to be at peace with him. And the concern here is how we live out our life. I think that's what the whole point of the book of Hebrews is. It's not how we get saved or lose our salvation, but how do we follow God in sanctification to enjoy his fullest blessing in our life? There is a uh, book that Dane Ortland came out with called Gentle and Lowly. Really a good book. I was reading it on vacation. It's too much to deal with, but the basic premise is that the statement Jesus made that I referred to in the opening about uh, Princess Elizabeth was that in the Matthew statement, Jesus reveals his heart. He says, I am lowly and gentle in heart. And he goes on to expound on this in really powerful ways. It goes way beyond, let's say, our doctrine of eternal security to say that it's the heart of Christ to move alongside of us, whether as Christians... We're performing great or we're screwing up bad. Because God, he can't deny himself. The Bible says that when God looks at his people's sinfulness, his transcendent holiness, his godness, his very divinity, that about, uh, that about God which makes him not us is what makes him unable to come down on his people in wrath. We tend to think that because he is God and not us, the fact that he is holy renders it all the more certain that he will visit wrath on his sinful people. Now there's lots of Christians who walk around and what he's saying there is they walk around, they're always fearful of making a misstep because they know they're gonna get pommeled by God. That's, that's what's going on in the deep race. If I screw up, God's gonna nail me. And you hear this all the time. If someone has a really bad week, I've often heard it, people will go, I wonder what I did wrong that God's doing this to me. And they don't see it as a process of growth, they see it as punishment. Once more, we are corrected. We are brought out from under our natural ways of creating God in our own image, and we allow God himself to tell us who he is. 
Just as we so easily live with a diminished view of the punitive judgment of God that will sweep over those who are outside of Christ, so we easily live with a diminished view of the compassionate heart of God sweeping over those in Christ. Thomas Goodwin and Hosea 11 and the sweep of the entire biblical storyline cause us to catch our breath. The sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us. The dam breaks. It is not our loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness. Our hearts gasp to catch up with this. It is not how the world around us works. It is not how our own hearts work. But we bow in humble submission, letting God set the terms by which he loves us. See, the Pharisees have never learned that the Sabbath was intended for them to learn how to rest in God and trust him completely. It was always about performance. It was always about keeping the rules. It was also about pointing out everyone else's faults so they conformed to their set of religious rules and convictions. And you're going to discover that there's possible that most of us have something wired in us that if we don't perform up to what God is saying, someday he might tap us on the shoulder and go, you know, it was a good try, but you're not going to get into heaven. At the heart of Christ is that he sacrificed his life while we were enemies. And Romans chapter 8 tells us then that he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also now with him freely give us all things? If you've trusted Jesus Christ, he is your greatest advocate, your greatest intercessor. He is going to hang on to you no matter how much we mess up, no matter whether we perform up to par or not, regardless of our sinfulness. He has a compassionate, lowly, and humble heart that embraces us because he's the one that's the perfecter of our faith, not us. And I say all this because some of us want to keep the rules, but we've lost sight of the relationship. And I wish I could this morning say that part of the whole purpose of even gathering together as a church is for you not to listen to me, but to get before the throne of grace of God and look into his eyes and no matter how bad your week went or how much you messed up or, or there's things in your life that you did that you know nobody else knows, but boy, they're not gonna find out that God says, listen, I know all of it and I love you and you're my child and I'm not going anywhere. See, we don't need to section a day off to keep it legalistically. We need to know the power of his spirit to nurture in us a sense of love and acceptance that knows God loves us, he's going to keep us, we're children of God no matter what. Father, thank you that even in something as simple as walking through a grain field, Jesus reminds his men and the Pharisees that he's Lord of the Sabbath, that the Sabbath wasn't made so that men could just make sure they protect a holiday, 
or a sacred day. It was given by God specifically to Israel and we have given the opportunity to have a Sabbath rest not only in putting faith and trusting Jesus Christ but living every single day in such a way that we know that you will never cast us out. That Jesus is our great intercessor when we mess up. That we are now and forever and for eternity children of the living God and your heart is for us. The Pharisees never got it. They just continued to keep wanting to keep the rules and never got a glimpse of the relationship with Christ. Father, whatever tweaks in our life, whatever burns within us about the idea of rules and regulations, Father, we surrender it to you and help us to enjoy a life of rest and peace in Christ in the midst of a pretty chaotic world. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.